Hello and welcome to the Otter Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Page, and today we're celebrating a very special day. It's the Otter's birthday, and you are all invited to the party. Come and join us for a special bonus episode to celebrate the Otter turning a year old with an episode where we deep dive some of the most interesting medical maladies you've never heard of. Slap on a party hat and grab a slice of cake and let's go. It's finally here, the great day of celebration for the little podcast that could. The Otter is a whole year old. I honestly can't believe it, and I'm so proud of it. A lot of hard work, learning curves, and just general ingenuity have gone into crafting this podcast, and I'm thrilled that it is finally holding its own head up and eating Cheerios. This is such a big achievement that we thought everyone should get a present, so we are gifting you all with a special bonus episode on the anniversary of The Otter's first publishing. I also know it's Valentine's Day. That was not intentional when I started The Otter, but what better way to spend the day of love than binging some Otter episodes, am I right? Don't worry though, because you will still be getting your regularly scheduled program. That's right, this week you are getting flush in Otter episodes, with one today and one on Thursday. It's a good week to be an Otter. And what thanks I have for my Otters, those who have been here from the beginning and those who are new, thank you so much for tuning in and making the podcast fun. Thank you for your requests, your reviews, and your patience, and your understanding, and especially your support. I've said it before, but we are a small podcast, and you can't imagine what the difference a five-star on Spotify, a like on our Instagram page, or an email can make. I like to know when I'm doing right and what I can do better, and I love that you are all giving me a chance to learn. Some fun facts from our first year. The most listened to episode was episode five, Missing and Unsolved, Michael Bryson. The longest episode was episode 8, Who You're Gonna Call, Ghost Identification at 37 minutes and 34 seconds. And the shortest was episode 3, The Shopping Cart Killer, at 14 minutes 32 seconds. The episode with the most social media interaction was episode 23, Captain Hook's Worst Nightmare, Gustav the Killer Croc. Our busiest month was March 2022, which somehow managed to land three episodes. And my personal all-time favorite was episode four, Questionable Genetics, The Blue Fugates of Kentucky. Definitely check some of these highlighted ones out to reminisce on the Otter's first year. So to summarize this all up, everyone raise your imaginary champagne glasses and say it with me. Happy birthday, the Otter Podcast. Here's to the best first year and hopefully many more to come. So, what interesting action-packed episode do we have for the Otter special day? Well, today we are taking a look into some of the most interesting medical diagnoses that you've probably come across in popular media but never knew the name of. Does the Elephant Man ring a bell? He wasn't the only person afflicted in that way. What about those strange pregnancy cravings? Ever wonder what happens when they span from things like pickles and ice cream to eating cigarette butts and chalk? Do you know someone who's really good with names but terrible with faces? What if that was because they physically can't see a face? Have I got your intrigue? Are you curious yet? Well, let's explore what the world is like for people suffering from pica, prosopagnosia, and proteus syndrome. Quick disclaimer before we get too far into this, the otter is in no way intending to poke fun or ridicule the people suffering under these maladies 
Being diagnosed with pica prosopagnosia or proteus syndrome does not make you odd. The otter seeks, as always, only to educate and encourage further knowledge about subjects that may not be known to the majority of its audiences. As this is also a medical episode, please use your own discretion over triggering content such as the consumption of sharp or toxic objects, skin rashes and gross, and discussion of medical procedures that may be upsetting to some listeners. What was the last craving you had? Was it for a slice of chocolate cake? Maybe you were really in the mood for a juicy steak. Do you have visions of buttery popcorn, fizzy pop, and candy dancing over your head? For most people, cravings are perfectly normal and safe to experience. They are actually a vital mechanism utilized by your body to tell you when you may be needing something important. However, the brain is a rat maze at best and a haunted underground sewer system at worst, so the messages can get a little mixed up on the way. A constant craving for sweets usually points to a need for more magnesium, chromium, or tryptophan. These nutrients do not lie in M&Ms and Skittles, but actually in things like broccoli, eggs, and beans. Having a late night craving for bread, you might be in need of nitrogen. Hitting your midday slump with a desperate desire for something fatty, a serving of calcium might actually be the ticket your body seeks. Feeling wolfish for some red meat? Sounds like you have a need for some iron. And it's not the salty goodness of potato chips you want, it's actually chloride. So why are we having this impromptu nutritional lesson? Well, a craving for cake, state, or salt may not set off any alarms, but what happens when you start craving other things? Things which may be far outside the normal parameters. What does it mean when you suddenly feel a compulsion to eat the unusual? Pica, and it is pronounced pica, but you may hear people say pica, is a disorder where someone has a compulsion or craving to eat items of no nutritional value. This affects predominantly pregnant women and children and is usually temporary. Now when I say objects of no nutritional value, this is a generalization that stretches over many things. People with pica feel urges to consume a number of different things, but examples include soap, button, hair, paint, glue, and even feces. This disorder may also lead to the consumption of especially dangerous items such as safety pens, thumbtacks, batteries, and bits of metal or glass that can pose a real threat to the digestive tract. But why does this happen? Unfortunately, there's no real answer. Some professionals point to deficiencies, like I mentioned prior to explain it, specifically deficiencies in iron and zinc that can lead to anemia and may explain the cases of pica that develop in pregnant women. Eating ice, something many pregnant women feel pushed to do, is considered a form of pica, and the craving to do so is linked to low iron in the body. However, this fails to explain all populations experiencing these strange compulsions. People with intellectual disabilities may also develop pica, and in these cases, the disorder is more severe and longer lasting. Research even suggests that the prevalence of pica in institutionalized populations is as high as 26%. Those suffering from schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder can also develop pica as a coping mechanism. They may be driven to eat these items under compulsions or delusions. An interesting example of this comes in the form of a 17-year-old Ethiopian girl with a long-standing history of pica. Initially, she was non-selective about her object of choice, but then developed a fixation on eating the mud that made up the walls of her house. But why did this happen? Unfortunately, the patient suffered from severe OCD. Specifically, she suffered from recurrent, unwanted, and intrusive thoughts and images of the mud wall and the act of eating it. She would feel distressed and anxious and would only get relief from the consumption of the wall. 
This obsession and compulsion cycle severely affected her daily life and caused her to have uncontrollable need to return home to eat from the wall. Here the pica is almost like a tag-along to another disorder. Now this would be very distressing to anyone. Imagine being unable to fight against the urge about eating objects or in this girl's case, the very walls. Pica is a serious illness that causes distress to most sufferers. However, because there is always a however, there are some people who practice pica and who openly enjoy it. Some people crave the textures and tastes of the non-nutritional items. Remember late night TV scrolling where you'd come across my strange addiction and watch enraptured as someone described eating mattresses, air freshener, or even the drywall? These are all forms of pica. And while some participants were openly very upset by these practices, some were very okay with it. In some cultures, pica is even encouraged in the form of geophagia. Now, geophagia is practiced worldwide and has been for centuries all the way back to the ancient Greeks and even the Native Americans. This is a habit mostly practiced by women who are pregnant or of childbearing age. Presently, it is most common in African-American women in the rural South and was believed to have been brought over by slaves from sub-Saharan Africa. Geophagia is the intentional practice of eating earth, soil, or clay. The purpose of this practice differs depending on who you talk to. For some, it is believed to be the binding effects of the clay to toxins. Many traditional cultures cook food like potatoes, acorns, and bread in clay as a way to protect it against toxic alkaloids or acid that would make the food inedible and dangerous, especially to those carrying a baby. Potatoes specifically contain a substance that can cause diarrhea, vomiting, and neurological problems if consumed in high levels. This toxic compound cannot be gotten rid of in either frying or baking, but South American Indians would consume these potatoes with alkaloid binding clay and found that this made them safe to consume. Another reasoning for consuming clay or dirt during your pregnancy may be for the mineral benefits. Mineral demand greatly increases during pregnancy. You are literally build a babying from scratch and soil is nature's vitamin world. Mineral content in clay varies from region to region, but many contain high levels of calcium, iron, copper, and magnesium. These are essential minerals for the human diet, but even more critical during pregnancy. But why dirt? Erica Gibson Stainland, an anthropologist, has found that geophagia is most common in cultures where the use of dairy animals is not available. Dairy products such as milk and cheese would provide the much needed calcium for pregnancy. But if you live in a culture or place where this option is not offered and you have been taught by the women before you that consuming dirt would lead to a healthy baby and body, you may be less hesitant to swallow some clay. Another advantage to eating clay during pregnancy may be the calming effects it can have on the mother's morning sickness. Clay, especially white clays, are made of kaolin, rolaid, maalox, and other medicines recommended for nausea and stomach upset are filled with the same antacid compounds found in white kaolin clay. So a mother suffering under the effects of nausea may take to clay as a natural remedy. Now listen to me. This is very important. Do not eat the dirt. Do not eat the dirt. Do not eat dirt. Do not listen to this. Go out into your backyard and start munching away at the mulch. Geophagia is practiced in cultures where the dirt is known to be clean and tasty. Your backyard is not that place. Consuming dirt or clay of unknown origin presents several risks such as pesticides, animal droppings, motor chemicals, and toxins. One more time for those who weren't paying attention. Do not eat the dirt.
However, in all fairness, you can eat the dirt if you so choose because I'm not your mother and I cannot tell you what to do. And you may in fact be able to get some clay at your local grocery stores. A quick Google search also brings up several retailers who offer edible clay and lists its innumerable properties. However, especially if you are pregnant, you should consult your doctor before adding something like clay to your diet. Most women who practice geophagia get their clays from sources other than the first few inches of topsoil, which have the most biological activity and the most bacteria, parasites, and other pathogens. Eating clay from certain areas is also attributed with better immunity for the people of that area. Similar to the Southern Colloquial, that eating local honey helps you develop a tolerance to the allergies there. However, be warned that the honey thing is just a myth. It should also be noted that those who regularly consume clay warn of the effects of overconsumption of the compound. It's constipation. Listen, if you decide to get down with nature's natural brick, don't complain when it plugs you up. Clay has also been long touted in diet culture as a miracle way to lose weight quickly. Shailene Woodley, star of Fault in Our Stars, is a lover of consuming clay. She supposedly makes her own clay toothpaste and swallows it after brushing. Zoe Kravitz told US Weekly that she drank clay to help lose 20 pounds for a roll. However, let me repeat myself. Do not eat the dirt. Doctors do not recommend a clay-based detox or a diet because aside from the possibilities of bacteria, viruses, and parasites in the substance, most supplements sold in food stores and online can contain high levels of arsenic and lead. Just don't eat the dirt if you don't already eat the dirt. But what do you do if you do eat the dirt? An official diagnosis of pica is only considered after the non-nutritional consumption has been going on for an extended period. In children and pregnant women, pica often goes away after a few months without treatment. If a nutritional deficiency is causing the pica, treating it with corrected diets and supplements should ease the symptoms. If a person with pica has an intellectual disability or mental health condition, medications for managing behavioral problems may also help reduce or eliminate their desires. However, sometimes there isn't a fix. Pica can last for years and sometimes present as a recurring diagnosis. If you experience symptoms or consume any non-nutritional object, you should seek the advice of a doctor. If you're curious about how Pika is getting the pop media treatment, you can check out the movie Swallow, which centers on a pregnant woman experiencing the compulsion to eat dangerous objects. Or check out the Glorious Psychiatric Museum in Missouri, which hosts a chilling display of 1,446 metal objects that were removed from a sufferer of Pika in 1929. Some of the objects include nails, screws, and spoons. Unfortunately, the patient did not survive the surgery. So we've covered pica, a difficult disorder where the sufferer consumes random objects to satisfy a craving or urge. This would be difficult to experience, but also to witness in someone you cared about. Imagine looking your loved one in the eyes, trying to understand why this is happening to them. Imagine even worse if you couldn't look them in the eyes because you couldn't see their face. Now the transition was clunky, but I'm not talking about some sci-fi horror, body snatcher situation, or an unmentioned side effect of pica. I'm talking about the second diagnosis of the day. What if you couldn't recognize the face of the one you loved or even any faces in the world? What if you couldn't even recognize your own? This is what life is like for those with prosopagnosia. Prosopagnosia is also called face blindness, and it is a disorder in which the sufferer is unable to recognize faces. Now the people with this disorder are not blind. They know they are looking at a face, but they can't process who it belongs to. The people who suffer from prosopagnosia are typically born this way and have gone through their lives dealing with it. Not all with prosopagnosia are the same either, it has levels. 
Some people only struggle with recognizing familiar faces. Some just cannot discriminate between unknown faces. Others cannot even distinguish a face as being different from an object, and even more challenging are those who cannot recognize their own. People who suffer from this may not be able to identify emotional expressions or determine the age or gender of someone they are looking at. Now what do they see? Do we all just look like lollipop people or even worse, smooth skinned blank faced horrors? Thankfully no, but people who have the diagnosis are believed to see faces in parts, as opposed to the whole. People who see faces as a whole are more likely to recognize the person than those who are reliant on the parts. Now this can be kind of hard to grasp, so bear with me. People with prosopagnosia can recognize an eye, a nose, and a mouth, but they cannot differentiate between what makes an eye, a nose, and a mouth unique. Think about if someone took a bunch of pictures of people and copy and pasted the same face on all of them. You no longer have the ability to use the spacing of the eyes, the shape of the nose, or the fullness of the lips to recognize these people. You would now need to use the color or texture of their hair, their general size, and other features aside from their face. I will post a picture on social media of what that might look like. As an at-home experiment, if you're really wanting to deep dive what this might be like, take a picture and turn it upside down. It is much more difficult for our brains to recognize faces when they are like this, and this may give you an idea of what living prosopagnosia is like. So why does this happen? What causes prosopagnosia? For starters, there are two types. There is developmental prosopagnosia, which means the person was likely born this way, and there is acquired prosopagnosia, which means that it developed after brain damage, usually following a stroke or a fall. Imagine getting that warning from our mother, stop climbing on that tree, you're gonna fall and lose the ability to recognize faces. Scientifically, prosopagnosia is thought to be the result of abnormalities, damage, or an impairment to the right fusiform gyrus, a fold in the brain that appears to coordinate the neural system that controls facial perceptions and memory. Prosopagnosia, the one not developing as a result of a brain injury, appears to run in families, which makes it likely to be a result of a genetic mutation or deletion. Some degree of prosopagnosia is often present in children on the autism spectrum. People who develop prosopagnosia often report at least one family member with similar symptoms. Let me try to simplify this as best I can. To recognize a face, the brain relies on a neural network of at least three core regions in the occipital and temporal lobes of the right and left brain hemispheres, which supply different aspects of facial processing. Prosopagnosia occurs when a link in this network, specifically that little fold, becomes damaged and or never worked right to begin with. Now, remember earlier when I said our brains were a haunted sewer system when it comes to understanding signals? Well, it gets a little worse. Some people born with developmental prosopagnosia or who had a head injury that caused acquired prosopagnosia at a young enough age may not even be aware that they have prosopagnosia. That's right. Some people go their entire lives never realizing they don't see faces the way the rest of us do. Somebody listening to this podcast right now could have prosopagnosia and not even know. But how? How can you not know? Prosopagnosia has no cure and people are instead taught coping strategies, so how would that even work? The face is not the only way we learn to recognize people. Think back to someone you know really well. Your mom, your partner, your weed guy, whoever. Think about what makes them recognizable to you aside from the face. How do they walk? How do they smell? Do they wear a ring you gave them? Are they partial to a specific style you know? How tall are they? How big are their feet or their hands? Do they have freckles, moles, or tattoos? Don't even think about their voice, just the body. 
You could recognize them, couldn't you? This is how children with developmental prosopagnosia were noted to cope with their disorder without notice or treatment. This is how people get to adulthood and beyond without realizing they can't see a face. People are unique, thank God they are unique, and we form bonds and recognize people because of their uniqueness. For those of less close association, we humans have a great way of coping when we don't recognize someone who seems to know us. Usually it goes along the route of, hey, you, how you been? Remember the last time you met someone who was like, I changed your diapers, and you had no idea who that is, but you can't act like you don't, because that's rude, so you faked it? Same thing. People with prosopagnosia deal with people they can't immediately recognize the same way everyone else does, by faking it until they can get away or recognize the person. Funny enough, the biggest complaint people with this disorder have is trouble following the plot of television shows and movies, because they struggle to keep track of character identities. Now I want to take a moment to make something very clear. People with face blindness have normal visual acuity. They can differentiate between shades of color, identify patterns, and see in 3D as well. They do not have any problem with memory or comprehension and have normal intelligence. People with this disorder can see what they are looking at. They can identify what they are looking at. They just can't recognize who it is. Now has media gotten a hold of this and done their usual butchering? Of course! You can find several instances of prosopagnosia being used as a plot point. The Beauty Inside is a 2018 South Korean television series. The series tells the love story of an actress who must spend one week out of each month living in someone else's body and the man who suffers from prosopagnosia who falls in love with her. Faces in the Crowd is a 2011 horror movie, a horror thriller centered on a woman living with face blindness after surviving a serial killer's attack. In Vivid Detail is a 2007 drama, another love story between an architect who suffers from prosopagnosia and the woman he's interested in. Rounding up our episode, we come to a disorder you've actually seen and just not known the name of. Proteus syndrome causes abnormal overgrowth in the certain parts of the body. It is commonly called elephant man's disease. This disease results in significant lifelong physical effects and potential disabilities. It is actually exceedingly rare, the most common case of course being the elephant man who was originally believed to suffer from neurofibromatosis but is now believed to have had this disease. It was identified as a condition in 1979 and there have been few confirmed cases since then, a total of 200 people to be precise. That puts the odds of someone having this to be at one in a million literally. So when I say abnormal overgrowth, what do I mean? So people with Proteus syndrome experience a mutation in the gene AKT1. This is something you were born with, and AKT1 controls cell growth through a protein it makes. Doctors believe the altered protein prevents cells from dying off at a normal rate. Instead of new cells replacing the old ones, the new cells form in addition to the original ones. This leads to overgrowth in portions of the body. Let me break this down just a little bit further. You are not born with and die with the same cells. In order for your body to grow, to age, to recover, cells die and they die quickly. When they die, they are replaced by fresh cells who run their course and then also die and then also are replaced. And when I say this happens quick, I mean quick. The average person will replace 330 billion cells daily. Daily! And that is only about 1% of the total cells that make you, you. Blood cells live between 3 to 120 days at most. The cells in our gut lining live less than a week. If you've ever heard that your entire body is replaced every 7 years, there's actually some truth to that. It's just more likely 7 to 10 years for all the cells in your body to go through a replenishment process. Something completely natural and painless you don't even feel. The mind may be a haunted sewer system, but the body is actually pretty amazing in what it can do. 
People with Proteus syndrome do not have this process. Their cells do not die off before being replaced and instead end up almost stacking, creating the excessive growth in appearance. Proteus syndrome is known as a mosaic condition. This means that not all the cells in your body will have the altered AKT1 gene. Some cells have the alteration, but others do not. This is why overgrowth affects some areas of the body, but not others. What this looks like varies from person to person. Typical symptoms include overgrowth of the limbs or extremities, raised rough areas of the skin, scoliosis, overgrowth of fatty tissues, malformed blood vessels, so on and so forth. Physically, this can take the form of extremely long necks, one leg being larger than the other, and disproportionate growth of skin on the body. I will post a picture on the socials, but use awareness of your own comfort levels when Googling. Now, Proteus syndrome is really a luck of the draw thing. There is no believed genetic disease or inheritance of the syndrome, and children with it are born displaying no symptoms. They develop later as they grow. It is a very debilitating disease, and people who have Proteus syndrome need a medical team to manage their condition in most cases, including a cardiologist, pulmonologist, orthopedist, dermatologist, physical therapist, or occupational therapist. Surgery to correct overgrowth is a common treatment for Proteus syndrome, but there is no cure. In 1980, a movie called The Elephant Man was made and portrays the likeness of Proteus Syndrome. You may also be wondering why it is called Proteus Syndrome. Proteus, in Greek mythology, was a prophetic old man of the sea and shepherd of seals. Proteus knew all things, past, present, and future, but disliked sharing what he knew. Those who wished to consult him had to surprise and bind him during his noonday slumber. Even when caught, he would try to escape by assuming all sorts of shapes, but if his captor held him long enough, the god at last returned to his proper form, gave his wished-for answer, and plunged into the sea. Because Proteus could assume whatever shape he pleased, he came to be regarded by some as a symbol of the original matter from which the world was created. This shape-shifting ability and movement of matter is what led to him sharing his name with the Syndrome. Well, that's all for this episode, so what do you think? Did you enjoy the medical talk? Have you ever had a strange craving? What do you think people recognize you by? Let us know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and leave a review. The Otter Pod is now on TikTok. Come follow us there. Have a suggestion for a show? Send me an email at theotterpod at gmail.com with your request, and whether you'd like me to mention your name, your alias, or nothing at all. Remember, this is the otter side, so give me something cool, creepy, or confusing to deep dive for you. If you like the show, leave us a review. They really help. Once again, happy birthday, otter! And here's to many more. Don't forget, this is just a birthday bonus episode, and you will be receiving another on Thursday. Can't wait to see you again in two days. The Otter Podcast usually posts every other Thursday. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the otter side. <laughs>